Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak to Brandon Munro. He's a uranium market commentator, but also CEO of Bannerman Resources, an Australian-listed uranium junior with assets in Namibia. This week's conversation takes in the U.S. House Appropriations Committee's decision to block the uranium reserve idea. We find out what that is going to mean for uh, U.S. equities, uh, indeed for the whole nuclear program over there. We also look at the supply story with uh, Kazakhstan extending the lockdown period. The impact on Kazatomprom is significant and with no end in sight. What does it all mean? And for our Crux Club members, we also talk about Nord Stream 2 and the similarities between the uranium market and what is going on between the US and Russia there. And in the context of the Russian suspension agreement, it all starts to get quite interesting. Plus, Iran, following the JCPOA uh, discussions, um, we hear about an explosion at the enrichment plant at Natanz. Uh, where, why, and who, we don't know, but enjoy the podcast. Brandon Munro, how are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, Matt? Good. Feels like a long week, if I'm honest. Uh, but we've got to get on with this. We've got another exciting week of uranium conversations to discuss. Some pretty big things this week. Um, we're going to discuss some of them in this forum, and then we're going to go and talk about some quite interesting stuff in the uh, Crux Club forum, aren't we? Looking forward to it. Looking, Looking forward, forward to, it. to it. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's start off with the big one. I think man, people started talking about it last night, but haven't really kind of got into um, the detail of it. U.S. House of Appropriations Committee have um, come up with something which is probably not too good news for the uh, uranium juniors in the U.S. What did you make of it? Yeah, look, I think it would be just pretty discouraging for some of those companies that have uh, really pushed the Section 232 process and were hoping to obtain shorter-term benefits. Uh, So for the viewers out there, the House Appropriations Committee whose job it is, is to take the recommended budget proposals, mark them up and then submit them to Congress uh, for approval. And that's for the budget commencing in October 2020. Um, They jettisoned really the proposed US uranium fund. So if we go back for a moment to the report that came out of the Nuclear Fuel Working Group, which came out of the Section 232 investigation, all those months ago, um, the report recommended a $150 million per annum uranium reserve that would acquire between 17 and 19 million pounds over about 10 years and also convert a proportion of those so that the US could improve and enhance its uh, stockpiling capability. Um, At the moment, the US uh, Department of Energy maintains only enough strategic reserves for about seven uh, reactor refills, uh, reloads, and that was seen as not enough. Now, what's happened is the House Appropriations Committee says, nope, we're not going to fund that. We're not going to approve that. And they cited uh, a lack of detail, in fact, from the Department of Energy over that. So they basically said, we're not too sure about the justification for this uranium reserve and uh, in fact we didn't really get our questions answered on how it would be implemented etc etc 
So a bit of a discouraging setback for many of those US producers. But of course, for the broader market, uh, it's, it's just really a blip. Does it surprise you? Is, it, is this a shock to you? No, no. I mean, in fact, you and I were talking about it. If it wasn't last week, it was the week before, where we were saying the DOE really seems to have its headspace in nuclear technologies, particularly um, SMRs and advanced reactor technology. When you look at where the money's going, most of the funding has gone to R&D for those different technologies. They can see how it can more directly benefit the US industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they did appear to be quite slow in getting their head around the nuclear fuel cycle during section 232. And my impression, and we talked about this as well, was that the, the reserve looked a little bit like throwing a bone to the US mining industry. <clears throat> quite an attractive bone if it had come off, of course, and, it, and that had been spread amongst only two or three of the miners. So it doesn't really surprise me to see this, um, given how distracted DOE has been and where its, where its uh, focus has been. Okay, so given that, I mean, what's the timing on all of this? What, what happens next? So the committee itself basically told DOE to go home and do its homework. Um, what they asked for was they directed that the Department of Energy needs to come back with a plan, including costings, uh, within 180 days of the Act passing. So they want them to tell the House Committee how they're going to go about procuring, converting, storing. They want information on the legal uh, processes that allow them to do this type of thing um, and uh, all of the associated costings to that within 180 days. Now, that's obviously half a year from now, and presumably what would happen from there is that that then gets tipped into next year's budget appropriations process. So my take on this and my read is that unless uh, the Republicans pull a rabbit out of the hat in the Senate during this um, uh, appropriations process, we're now looking at that money potentially being available from October 2021. So it's a long way off and there's a... A long period of lobbying that's going to be required to see this one through from here. I mean, if I'm a US uranium junior, I'm going to be pretty pissed because someone's dropped the ball here. They haven't done the homework. They haven't put in the hard yards to actually provide the information which was asked for. And I guess quite rightly, the committee's gone, no. Well, I don't know where the breakdown has occurred. I, I, honestly, I've got no idea. And uh, there's a number of people who come on your show who probably would have some good insights as to that. Um, it would definitely be disappointing for uranium juniors or uranium producers who are um, eyeing off this potential source of demand. The opportunity to contract directly with the US government would be very attractive to them. Um, I'd look at it a bit more holistically, though, uh, which is the market is going to do the heavy lifting here anyway. Um, by the time this all gets sorted out, the sort of numbers that they told the DOE that they would need in order to effectively resume production, the market is going to the market's going to navigate and gravitate to those numbers anyway. Um, I'll be astonished if in two or three years' time we're not above sixty sixty five dollars a pound on a term contracting basis. So it might be that when we finally get there, 
and the US finally starts procuring this material from uh, US production, uh, the market has solved the problem for them in any case. And we now look back at all of these delays and this great long process that's uh, certainly put a, a wet blanket and a dampener on a lot of the utility activity. We look back at all of this and say, well, what was that for? Well, I'd agree with you, but again, we, we've had conversations probably back in the early days where we were trying to explain to people the importance of US utilities because it's such a big market. But the reality is it's 25% of the market and you know the, the market will, ha- well, we said at the time, would have to sort itself out. Uh, it looks like it's probably is going to have to do that. It is going to have to find its own pricing uh, in the market because it's not getting much help from US politicians at the moment. Yeah, and look, I think some would justifiably ask the question whether it's the US politician's role to be helping in that instance. Um, and that's a whole different discussion that really comes into what's what's the philosophically the right level of government intervention and so forth. And, uh, and there's a broad range of views on that, of course. But uh, you're quite right. I mean, we know what supply and demand needs to do. And if utilities want to buy diverse supply from anyone except, say, the Kazakhs and the Russians, for example, well, they're going to have to be prepared to spend a proportion of their portfolio of contracts uh, at those prices and above over the coming years. But it, it, it does come back to this whole chip. A geopolitical component of around energy, uh, around uranium and, and nuclear energy as well. Um, I think we're going to chat in the uh, the members club about Nord Stream two. Um, but it's just it's a real real reminder that you know whether politicians should or should not get involved in decision making like this, they are because we've got various sanctions, Russian sanctions, or Iran sanctions. We've got, uh, you know, and, and the, the U.S.'s uh, allies are even feeling a little bit ostracized uh, about the way that the American politicians are approaching this at the moment, especially around Iran, for sure. So um, I, I think it's hard to separate the politicians' activities and the utilities' decision-making in this environment and in an election year, too. So... It, it's complicated as ever, um, but I think again, coming back to my point, I think U.S. junior uranium companies are going to find this a little bit hard to swallow. Well, you're absolutely right on the on the political uh, and geopolitical implications, and this is in the counter argument um, to the one that I um, referred to a moment ago, which is it's, it, nuclear energy is inextricably linked to geopolitics. Um, Even in the US free market environment, in Russia and China, uh, it's entirely absorbed into the political apparatus and the political industrial geopolitical apparatus in those countries. And as came through really clearly in the working group report from Department of Energy, um, the US has dropped the ball on that. So the counter argument is, this is a special form of energy, as we've always said, it's so closely integrated into geopolitical ambitions of the world's major players that it should be integrated into the political process as well. So that's a counter-argument and, and the one that, incidentally, I favour. 
And we've talked so much about the role of geopolitics and you can't really understand the uranium sector unless you've got a reasonable grasp of geopolitics. And as we've talked many times on the show, that's where we tend to navigate when we're looking at the bigger picture of this. What's interesting to me in what you've said earlier is that, you know, this this announcement, you know, obviously it's not going to face utilities, but for investors, retail investors in particular, looking forward to these large catalyst moments over and over for the last couple of years since Section 232 uh, started, um, this this will be a huge disappointment because, you know, just as we had, it's a, it's a huge inertia uh, yet again. Um, when they're looking for salvation in, you know, spot price uh, rising, support from the U.S. government, and um, to to kind of see this, the short the, the short term impacts uh, won't be there. There won't be any um, movement in, in uranium equities uh, off the back of this. But you, your view is it doesn't matter. The market will sort itself out. It doesn't matter for most of the sector. So when I look at my Twitter account and some of the responses that I've had um, to this news, it's largely been comments like, oh, my God, the whole sector is going to be down. And it's like, no, it won't be the whole sector. It's a handful of companies who stood to benefit from this. So we need to be really clear that for 90 percent of uranium juniors out there, uh, those exposed to Africa, those exposed to Canada, those exposed to Australia and elsewhere, um, this makes very little difference. Sure, it would have been nice to have another source of demand coming in there. It's always nice to have a government buying material out there that others can't buy. But it's it's not even the same as uh, the effect that take the Ranger mine coming off stream, that ERA is uh, closing. Uh, that's far more impactful on the market than what this source of demand is. So we just need to put that in perspective. I, I don't want to... Um, downplay the the disappointment for the key players here. Uh, But by the same token, uh, it doesn't really make much difference to uh, the the broader industry here. Okay, I I guess that's true. In terms of um, pounds out of the ground, it it doesn't really add up to a lot in the the scheme of things. I guess that's that's what you're saying. Let's talk about um, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, we we heard last week, and obviously we interviewed Kazatom Prom last week, and we sort of heard from the horse's mouth there. But this extension to the lockdown period, I mean, it, it really is a it really is a big. I mean, I think they are handling things really well. I think they're handling things, you know, as per Cameco, they're doing the right things for the right reasons. But the impact on that could be significant because there is no end in sight. That's right. That's right. So we've seen the two week extension extended by another two weeks. And to us, and we talked about this on the show um, two weeks ago, I think it was, that was very apparent that that was going to be the case. Um, The Ministry of Health's own numbers uh, in terms of the expected number of um, daily pneumonias by the end of August, the number of beds that would be required and so on, um, they pointed very, very directly at four weeks of necessary lockdown. Um, assuming a an improving trajectory. Now, we haven't seen that improving trajectory, and yet there was those numbers that were still presumably valid projections. So that's now been extended. I think uh, Kazadamprom would have been 
forming a very similar view to what you and I formed a couple of weeks ago. So they would have expected those numbers to uh, those uh, lockdown restrictions to carry on. Now, how much longer do they carry on? Well, gee, anyone's guess. I mean, in Australia at the moment, in Victoria, they had a um, hundred cases a day, and they slapped a six-week lockdown onto the city of Melbourne, which is five million people. Um, and we've seen a, a far escalating problem compared to that in Kazakhstan and its neighbours. So there is no end in sight. Obviously, there will have to be an end at some point. But is it two more weeks? Is it four more weeks? Is it six more weeks? Uh, very hard to judge. And I, I think it'll be very interesting now to tune in on the 3rd of August when Kazatomprom has their quarterly results. Um, because now they're obviously under some uh, pressure to address production guidance. But equally, they've also got now a change in circumstances. They've got this extension of two weeks, which means they kind of have their justification now to address production guidance in a different way. So I'm very interested to see what they come out with on the 3rd of August. I mean, someone sent in a question, which was, I had absolutely no idea we're going to begin to come up with an answer for, which was, what happens if this COVID situation carries on for another year, right? And before we're going to get some sort of um, vaccination solution here, what does that do for these producers? Because obviously utilities may have, well, I say obviously, utilities have between sort of two to three years worth of, of, of um, inventory in reserve uh, for situations like this, they don't want to run out. But these companies, the longer they're offline, the longer it's going to take to get it online. So the question was this, can those companies come up with some kind of protocol which allows workers to get back in? And given the size of some of these, um, you know, for, like I think has Adam Brown for 20,000 workers, obviously not all of them essential workers not you know in the field as it were but how do we as, as a you know you know the world how do we get back into production in these um on these uranium sites these uranium assets without endangering lives it's an interesting question isn't it because the scenario which is the world still grappling with uh COVID in a year's time without a vaccine that's a very realistic scenario uh most of the medical um, information that I've seen on a vaccine is we're looking at at least that time frame before a vaccine is developed and safe and available to the public. And then there's a whole lot of questions about affordability. There's questions about what are the attendant risks with the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a scenario that I have um, very firmly in front of my planning from a Bannerman point of view and so forth. But having said that, I don't think it's realistic to expect that these big production centres will remain offline for that long, even if we're seeing an escalated issue at a societal level. Um, and there's a few reasons why I'd say that. The first one is that we learn, we get better. The mining industry is incredibly adaptable. It probably adapts as well as any other industry, um, perhaps including military. So uh, it, it comes up with various techniques. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, if we're talking about Kazakhstan, just for argument's sake, it doesn't mean that they're going to be back at 100% production necessarily. But over time, they would work out how they can do that. Um, the other thing is that, let's say again with Kazakhstan, that it continues to, to really battle COVID over that period of time. 
there's going to become a proportion of the workforce that develops immunity through having recovered from COVID. So in addition to whatever other mitigating um, workforce in, uh, steps are implemented by Kazatomprom, they're going to be able to draw on people who won't get sick. Um, but the other thing is, what we're talking about here is both in Kazatomprom and Cameco situation and some of the other companies that have been affected in other commodities, we're largely talking about preventative measures. Um, pre companies that are making tough, difficult decisions to prevent adverse circumstances, not only for their own workers and their families, but for the society at large, particularly in Cameco situation, who are very keen to preserve uh, or to avoid any contribution to the difficulties in Northern Saskatchewan. The t society's tolerance for those preventative measures will wane over time. We're seeing it wane already in the US uh, in many different ways at a societal level. So over time, uh, the, the balance will move more towards getting production and getting dollars in the, in the door. The question becomes in that scenario, while we're um, playing this one out and role playing it out, uh, where does that balance kick in? Because for a country like Kazakhstan, um, we've said it before, Kazakhstan is incredibly important to uranium, but uranium isn't that important to Kazakhstan. You know, 20,000 employees um, across, a, across the country there um, isn't massive compared to other hard rock commodities such as copper and gold, and it's, it's very, very small compared to oil and gas. So that the government, the society, the communities... Uh, we will see them accept that risk sooner, particularly in hydrocarbons and other forms of industry, than they will with uranium. Okay. Would that be six months? Would it be nine months? That's very hard to guess. But I think the idea that uranium could be shut down for a year is unrealistic. It's also quite interesting in terms of the supply story. Again, you know, we're going with some old ground here, but it's new data allows us to do that. Um, the longer this goes on, on you know, it, the current situation goes on, less supply there is in the market, less pounds there are in the market. And this, this sort of undertone we're getting from, from, from Cameco and, and Kazatom Prom about sort of sweeping up, you know, uh, pounds in the spot market, it's, it's really good news. I mean, I've got to bring this back to investors. It's, it's good news for investors in uranium companies um, and the longer this goes on the better it is for the you know how do I tier, tier three I'm calling them so I've got my tier one producers like Kazanprom and, and uh, Kamako and the like uh, and then the tier twos of people who have formerly produced and so the tier threes kind of coming through the longer this goes on it's better for those tier threes and you know and, and lower in terms of um, there'll be more need for them. I think there will be huge pressure on price the longer this goes on. Um, and that, that's, that can only be good for investors too. I mean, what, what's, your, what's your take on, from, from that angle? Because we, we talked again in the past about the possibility of if this goes on for a long time, people without cash are going to struggle. But at the same time, it's fantastic news on the, for the supply side of, of the market. So how do you weigh those things up as an investor? I absolutely agree. So what we're seeing here is the drawdown of inventory 
necessarily by utilities and others while the supply deficit widens. And that will, that will carry on to the end of the year and even into next year um, because of the existing structural supply deficit, but also the guidance that's coming out of Kazadenprom now seems pretty clear to me that it's going to affect 2021 production as well as 2020 for them as they uh, take time to reacidify their wells and develop new wellheads and so forth. But here's the rub. The more disruption that we see uh, and the longer we take for a market to rebalance, the more volatile it's going to be. So if, for example, at the end of 2018, uh, we'd seen a market rebalance, we'd seen a series of term contracts written, um, we'd seen price discovery and we'd seen uh, the uh, utilities meet their requirements out to 2026, 2027, 2028 and so forth, we would have seen prices go up, no question. Uh, that was absolutely necessary to preserve existing production, let alone to incentivise new production. But if the steps had been taken back then, it probably would have brought on enough new production at that price to avoid serious supply scarcity. But here we are two years later and that hasn't happened and the deficit's only got worse and now we've got a, a serious supply disruption taking place right now. So that means upward volatility. So as you say, that's great news for uh, all producers really, um, particularly good news for some of the, uh, let's say you use the term tier three and tier four producers who can get into business. But it also becomes very important to understand as an investor are you investing in a company that can produce producible pounds during that volatility period? Because if we go through a huge amount of volatility like we did in 2006, 2007, and then the market settles down again by 2030, and your investment is only looking at that time frame to get back into production, it'll see some benefit, no question. I mean, it's cost of capital will go down, et cetera, et cetera, but it won't be putting money in the bank as a result of selling pounds into those volatile price events. Yeah, I, I, I think it's um, some careful thinking about you know where you place your bets, depending on what your strategy is, for sure. Again, we, we, we've talked about it a lot before. We'll talk about it again. Um, but for the sake of today's conversation, I, want, I do want to talk about utilities, okay? We, we um, understand from last week's conversation why utilities are inactive. You explained that, you articulated that last week. Um, in terms of this Russian suspension agreement, I think it's, it's, again, just worth getting into a bit of detail about what the debate is there. What is the US wrestling with? What are these politicians who perhaps, you know, are affecting the, uh, the price of uranium and the nuclear industry? What are they wrestling with? Well, I think we need to remember that there's a debate, sure, and there's a lot of grandstanding and there's a lot of political posturing, and that's what we read about because it comes out in the media. But what we're actually talking about here is a negotiation. This is a negotiation between the US and Russia, where the US is seeking to get Russia to agree to the, uh, to the restrictions. And in return, Russia is seeking to get the US to agree to allow it to sell its uh, uranium, but in particular its enrichment services, uh, without um, forms of trade restrictions such as tariffs. So I saw some commentary out of, I think it was Energy Fuels, um, who uh, their view is that if there isn't 
an agreement that the resulting position will be uh, the suspension of the trade action falls away, which we've said before. And uh, they're saying that the result would be tariffs would come in at 115%. Um, so very, very significant tariff on Russian enrichment and uh, Russian uranium supply until the trade action can be re-established and resolved. Um, now, I don't, I'm just repeating what I've seen there. I haven't got into the detail to understand that. And it might be that they've got access that I don't. Um, but of course, if that is the result, you can imagine why the utilities are just so nervous about this because they could see those tariffs imposed on their existing contractual obligations with Russia. And unless they've got some sort of a force majeure or other option to get out of it, uh, it's going to make them pretty nervous about the cost that they'll be paying for their nuclear fuel. So that's what's at stake. And uh, there's various provisions where, for example, the US could unilaterally withdraw, um, giving a certain amount of notice. So we're hearing that perhaps uh, they're playing tough with Russia or attempting to. Let's just see how all of that plays out. But the word coming out from the US that I'm hearing is that this thing is still a long way from being resolved. And, you know, we're, we're likely to have a resolution in December, perhaps even late December here. And um, so that gives viewers an idea of why the utilities are so distracted from what we're seeing. And what happens if they don't come up with something in December? Do, do, can they extend the negotiations or does the, you know, the resolution, you know, come into effect? Uh, the resolution comes into effect. So there, there's no automatic extension. Um, effectively, what happens is that the... Uh, uh, 1998, I think it was, when the initial um, action, the trade action was brought, um, it was a dumping action was brought. That's the action that was suspended and why this whole thing is called the Russian Suspension Agreement, because it suspends that action. Um, the status quo at that time of that action would then kick in. Um, and as I say, I've, I've read from commentary from Energy Fuels that that involves a 115% tariff that would be automatically applied on anything caught by that action, which is um, Russian uranium and Russian enrichment services. Okay, we're now going to switch into the Crux Club. So look, thank you very much everyone uh, for watching this. I hope you enjoyed this week's show with Brandon. We're now gonna segue over to the Crux Club members where we're gonna talk about a little bit more about the geopolitical component and the impact on investors. So uh, for instance, what's happening in Iran, there's been, um, an explosion there. So we're going to talk about what's going on, and you know, should we should we be worried? Also, uh, we're going to talk about Russia a little bit more with Nord Stream two, um, and again, how that potentially influences influences what's going on in the nuclear uranium space. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.